I want to take uh, just a moment to say thank you to our church family for all that the cards, the texts, the calls, um, our family and um, this week has gone through some, some waters that many of you have gone through recently as well. Um, my precious mom, who was the matriarch of our family, 93 years old, she would have been 94 in October. Uh, she was a special, special lady. And so I thank you for, from the bottom of my heart on representing our family uh, for all of your kindness, your compassion, your condolences. You have been truly a, um, a strength for us as we've walked through this together. Continue to pray, please, for my, for, uh, my stepdad. We, everybody calls him Pawpaw. Um, he's 90. He'll be 91 in September. And they've been married over 53 years. So imagine what the um, emptiness that will be there in the home. And uh, his health is not exactly great either. So be praying for, his name is Quincy Carnes. Be praying for him particularly. Well, I want to take you on a journey today, and it's going to be a fast-paced journey because what we're going to look at today is what does God say about a geographical problem, and that is the city of Jerusalem. Why in the world would I want to preach a sermon about the city of Jerusalem or about the nation of Israel? Well, because the Bible does, and that's why. It's just simple as that. Why is Jerusalem and the, and the nation of Israel such a prominent figure in Scripture? Well, we want to look at all those issues, and we want you, I want you to understand that the nation of Israel, God gave a promise to them, and that promise will be complete. It is not complete now. There is no figurative way or allegorical way, and, and there are many who try and attempt to do that. But when God makes a promise, he fulfills that promise. And as we walk through the scripture today, I hope that you will see that Jerusalem and the nation of Israel is a special, special place in God's plan and his economy, not only in the past, not only in the present, but in the future. It has an absolutely uh, fabulous uh, part of our future as a church. In Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3, God chose a man named Abraham and promised Abraham to create a people for himself through that man and his wife, Sarah. Notice what Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says. Now the Lord said to Abram, who later he will change his name to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from the father's house to a land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those, and listen to this. This is still in force today because the word of God is still powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and when God makes a promise, that promise is complete. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in all, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Psalm chapter 33. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen, underline that, has chosen you to be a people for whom? For himself a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the land from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Psalm 33 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has what? Chosen as his own inheritance. Jeremiah 31, God made a promise to Abraham and kept it. And that promise has never been rescinded. Thus says the Lord, 
who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forevermore. Thus says the Lord, if the heaven above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that have done, says the Lord. The Lord says, it is impossible for me to ever rescind this promise. He says, if you could measure all of heaven and all the earth, all the foundations, he says, then I would be able to, I would be able to rescind this. He says, but you can't measure the fathoms of my creation. Nations that curse Israel will find themselves in a direct confrontation with Israel's God. Nations that bless and support Israel with themselves become the recipients of God's favor and blessing according to this covenant God made with Abraham and this promise he's given to not only to Abraham but to his posterity. Who is this Abraham? In Genesis 13, it says, For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. How long? Forever. And the last time I checked the Bible, when it says forever, it means forever. It's not for a part-time. It's not till something else comes along. It's not, it is an absolute promise that God made to this nation through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and carries on today. He says, Arise and walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. It is not the Palestinians' property. It belongs to the nation of Israel. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land and inherit it. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. Where? From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying to your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife from my son from there. Genesis 24. Isaac the promise to Isaac in Genesis 26. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in the land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give you all of these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. When God swears an oath, believe me, it will be fulfilled. I swore to Abraham your father, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed, in your seed, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And that, was a, that is a prophecy of the Messiah that would come. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And then to Jacob, he continued that in Exodus 33 and verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusites, and the Termites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way. You are a stiff-necked people. Even when the nation of Israel was in disobedience to God, God held his covenant to be true. And what a blessing that is for us today as well to know is that even though you and I 
don't fulfill all that Christ wants us to do, his promise is still sure. God promised a homeland called the land of promise in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 9, or the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 8. Notice these passages. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And then in Deuteronomy 19, Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers. Now, all of these passages of Scripture, and believe me, there are literally dozens more that we could look at and we could see that God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a promise and a covenant that he has that he has continued through that line and he will continue until the day Jesus Christ returns and Jesus fulfills that covenant and the Davidic covenant when Jesus sits on the throne literally in the temple there in the city of Jerusalem and that covenant that he made with David that there would always be a descendant on his on on the throne from David has not been completely fulfilled yet that will not be fulfilled until Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom here on this earth that is a sure promise from God we're going to see that as we go so what is this what is this uh, issue as well We've looked basically at the promise, the covenant that God made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, how does this concern the city uh, called Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the nation of Israel? Well, Jerusalem, uh, let's look at some of the history of this holy city. Jerusalem is a significant city in God's Word. You cannot read the Bible without seeing that Jerusalem is one of, it is the most significant city listed in Scripture. It's, a, it's sacred to all three major religions of the world. It's sacred to Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible 811 times, with Babylon being the next most mentioned city 287 times. Jerusalem appears in about two-thirds of the books of the Old Testament and almost half of the books of the New Testament. Jerusalem has been called by over 70 names throughout history. The most important of them are there in the Bible. What are some of those? It's called the City of David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. It's called Zion in Psalm 87 in verse 2. It's called the city of righteousness in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 26. It's called the city of the great king in Psalm 48 and verse 2. It's called the holy city in that same Psalm 48 and verse 2. And Isaiah 52 and verse 1. And then in Revelation 21 and verse 2, John says this, Then I, John, saw the holy city, underline this, New Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about that a lot more later. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This new Jerusalem will be the place that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, will dwell. Jesus had a physical resurrected body. He was bodily resurrected from the dead. You and I have that same promise. And, and that resurrected body, has. If, if we have a physical body, we need to live in a physical place. Well, let's just walk through and see what the Scripture says. It's an important city in the life of Jesus and his ministry. In Luke chapter 2, we're not going to read that whole passage, but in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, Jesus' parents brought him to the temple and presented him to the Lord. And then in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 50, Jesus tarried in Jerusalem at age 12, spending three days alone there, conversing daily with the teachers in the temple. In fact, he mesmerized them with his wisdom. 
And then in Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, after Jesus' baptism, Jesus was taken to Jerusalem by Satan to the highest point of the temple, and there he tempts him to take a shortcut to the cross. But Jesus, of course, rejects that, and he answers Satan's temptations with the word of God. Then John records in the, in the Gospel of John, John records that Jesus made four visits to the city of Jerusalem. John chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3 and verse 21, his first trip. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 47, the second trip. Chapter 7 through 10, the third trip. And chapters 12 through 20, the fourth trip. All the Gospel of John talks about Jesus being in the city of Jerusalem. It is an important city. In Matthew 23 and 37, the Bible says that Jesus loved Jerusalem and he mourned over her unbelief. Notice what it says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to, to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. There in the triumphal entry, we see this whole idea that Jesus is weeping over this city, this city of God, this city that God has established as a place. Ezekiel chapter 5 and verse 5, Jerusalem is the center of Israel in the same way, and I wrote this down because I believe it to, that it's a good illustration. All illustrations have their holes. But Jerusalem is the center of Israel in the same way that your heart is the center of your body. And what I mean by that is simply this. Jerusalem has a central place in the plan of Almighty God. Not only from the Old Testament in establishing the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Noahic covenant and all the other covenants that we see there, but this, this, this city, Jerusalem, has a special place in God's plan even for the future. Here's what I wrote about this, and I think it to be true with all my heart. God loves this city. Satan hates this city. Jer Jesus wept over this city. The Holy Spirit descended into this city, and the nations are drawn to it. And ultimately, Jesus Christ will return, and he will reign on the throne of David in it. That's what the Scripture says. Now, picture in your mind, to just kind of give you a, a graphic of uh, compared to all the nations around and this whole idea if you'll take the picture North America the United States particularly picture of find dead center in the United States of America and move uh, New Jersey to the dead center of America how big a spot do you think that would take? Not much. It would just be a, a little blob on the map. And then look at all the surrounding states and things there in that, with, with New Jersey dead center. That's kind of a picture of what it is in there with Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a little bitty city surrounded by all of its enemies, and all of its enemies have done everything they can to destroy that city, to take over that city, to do everything they can to wipe that city and that, and that nation completely off of the face of the earth. They, they proclaim they want to push it into the sea and to destroy it. They want to destroy the Jewish people. They want to destroy the nation of Israel. They want to destroy everything that there is about Jerusalem and about God Almighty, but they have not been able to do it and they will not be able to do it. So Jerusalem is a special city. Also, Jerusalem is a specific city in God's word. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 44, we see that God chose this city specifically. It says, when, you, when your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them and when they pray to the Lord 
uh, toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built uh, for your name. In the city, what? That you have chosen. God has chosen this city. It says the same thing in Second Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. God chose this city. Psalm 132, God chose this city specifically. Psalm 87, it's called the city of God. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, a euphemism or another name for the city of Jerusalem, more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Psalm 78 is a chosen city by God specifically. It says, moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. Jerusalem is a specific city in Scripture chosen by God. It's a special city as well. Jerusalem is a special city in God's Word. Jerusalem became the capital of Israel by decree of King David over 3,000 years ago. You can see that in the Word of God. Let's look at some of the more modern history or history in which we've seen this whole controversy over this great city and why we see that God's hand is upon it and that God has protected it for a particular reason. In October of 1995, the United States Congress voted for the capital um, of, of, of the nation of Israel to be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem by the year 1999. And every president from that time has promised they would do it, but none of them would do it. In June of 2017, the United States Senate, now listen to this, they voted 90 to nothing. Now, I know there's 100 of them. The other 10 passed. They voted 90 to nothing, passed a resolution that reaffirmed the 1995 congressional decision, and six months later, the then-President Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital city and moved the U.S. Embassy there from Tel Aviv. And I want you to know that that is, in my opinion, a clear fulfillment of prophecy, again, that's taking place. And I believe that the coming of the Lord could happen even this very hour. This is a part of prophecy of God bringing back the Israelites back to this, to this nation and to this special city. It's a special city. Jerusalem is the city of Christ's second advent as well. When he comes to this earth and his feet touches the earth, the Bible tells us in Zechariah 14 and verse 4 that he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. And where is the Mount of Olives? Look at what Zechariah says. And in that day... His feet, whose feet? The Messiah's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that what? Faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. There's going to be a tremendous cataclysmic event when Jesus comes to back to this earth. In Matthew Chapters 24 and 25 is what is known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus there at the Mount of Olives proclaims about his second coming as he's proclaiming to his disciples and to his followers. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, at Jesus Christ when he ascended into heaven, we, we are told there that he will come in like manner to this same location. Notice what it says. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud, received, re received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He will return, I believe, the Bible teaches, to the very same spot. Jerusalem is the city of Christ's sovereign rule during the establishment 
of his literal kingdom here on earth where he will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and all the other covenants, but particularly the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant where he is sitting on the throne in the newly built temple. Six times in the book of Revelation chapter 20, the Bible says about the thousand-year reign of Christ in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. Notice what he says. Let the word of God speak for itself. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for how long? A thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until what? The thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark, its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ. How long? A thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in this first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, I don't have time today to walk you through the whole timeline there, but the Bible is very clear. You can allegorize this if you want to. You can make it, you can take it and try to, to make it say something it doesn't. But the Bible says here that Jesus Christ is going to rule physically and reign physically on the throne of David in the temple in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Now, there's no other way that, that I see or understand, and believe me, I have studied every view that there is, and they all fall short when it comes to the, the rule and reigning and Jesus establishing his, the kingdom of God here on this earth. Now, what are some of the biblical terms that are used to describe this millennial reign of Christ? It's called the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, he said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the what? The kingdom of heaven. Then it's called the kingdom of God. Mark 1 in verse 15 and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's called the times of refreshing in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It's called the time of restoration in Acts 3 and verse 21. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. It's called the day of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until when? The day of Jesus Christ. It's also called the fullness of times 
in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, in other words, God has moved in different dispensations in his work with God's people, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. There will one day be one people of God. There will be no Jew or Gentile, no bond or free, no male nor female. We, as the scripture says, it with the ground at the cross is level, and the Bible tells us that God is going to make us one, that we will be his body. But that's not happened yet. God still has a plan to bring the nation of Israel to their Messiah. It's also called the world to come. Hebrews 2 and verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. In other words, angels are not going to rule and reign in this, in this new world to come. He is going to do it. Jeremiah 3 and verse 17, it's called the throne of the Lord. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called, what? The throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Has that ever happened? No, it hasn't. It's going to happen during the millennial reign of Christ. When the whole world will come, and proclaim and see that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's called the throne of David in Luke chapter 1. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him what? The throne of his father David, and that is a literal, I believe, throne of God. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And of his kingdom, what kingdom? Jesus' kingdom, there will be no end. And in Zechariah chapter 14, the millennial capital and the temple we see here is, 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 is built, and this Jerusalem is the, becomes the capital city of, of that. And then we see, finally, the future of the holy city. What is the future of this holy city? Remember we read in Revelation where it talks about the new Jerusalem, that the old um, heaven and the old earth had passed away. John says, and, and behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. What is this future of the holy city called Jerusalem? Well, God's plan, his prophetic plan, his plan for all of his people, for every nation to come to him, the fulfillment that every knee shall bow and tongue shall confess, to the proclamation of the fact that he is Lord of all, that he will establish his kingdom. Notice what the future of this great holy city. God's not finished with the city yet. Earthly Jerusalem that is the city that we know of now, to which Jesus will return from and where he will reign for a thousand years, I believe this is a prelude to another Jerusalem that the Bible describes in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, that it is a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. New Jerusalem, I believe will be the celestial city currently existing in the highest of heavens that will descend to its rightful place on the new earth at the dawning of eternity. Now, Dr. David, David Jeremiah made that statement in his, in his book, Would You Have Ever Believed? And in that book, in a chapter in that book, he said, Would you have ever believed that the, that the United States of America would have ever turned their back on Jerusalem? and the nation of Israel. He believes, as I believe, that this Jerusalem is a special, special city in God's plan for the ages. Hebrews 11 and verse 16 
tells us that this was the city that was anticipated by Abraham. But now they desire a, uh, a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared what? A city for them. Now, I happen to, to believe that we should take the word of God literally, unless the literal sense doesn't make sense. And it makes a lot of sense to me that God can make a city. And he's preparing that city. It is the new Jerusalem. John 14, 2 and 3. What did Jesus promise? He promised the city. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Notice he said he's gone to prepare a place. What is that place? Hebrews 13, 14. It's the city that's been awaited by the saints throughout all the ages. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. In other words, we're just sojourners in this earth. But we've got a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, that's coming. And then in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, the city of the living God, it's called, the heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews 12 and verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Galatians 4 and verse 26, the city of Jerusalem above, but the, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. The new Jerusalem will descend. It will descend at a time in which we will see at the end, at beginning of eternity. Notice what it says in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5. And this is John speaking, and he says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Why is there a new heaven and a new earth? For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw what? The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And then in Revelation 21, 9 through 27, we see the new Jerusalem is described. Now, I know this is a long passage of Scripture, but we, we must read it. Listen to what he says. How, what, what is this new Jerusalem? The Bible's very clear what it is. It tells us exactly how large it is. It gives us its dimensions. Notice what it says. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride. The Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem. Where's the bride of Christ going to be? In the holy city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes. You, th you don't think Israel's important? Well, the new Jerusalem is going to have the 12 tribes, the names of the 12 tribes. If, if, if Israel and the nation of, of Israel and, and, and Jerusalem is not important, why would the new Jerusalem have that on there? 
the 12 gates, the 12 angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and he talked with me and had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. Notice now here he gives a description of this new city. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its, bre as its breadth. And he has measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Its length and breadth and height are equal. So it's a perfect cube. Then he measured its walls, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun and of the moon to shine in it, walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What is this new Jerusalem? I wish I had time. I mean, any one of these points that we've looked at today you could preach on for six months and still not cover everything that the Bible says about them. I just want to close with you today by saying simply this. God's plan in his word has a special place for the nation of Israel and for the city of Jerusalem. We see that even in eternity to come that that plan is being wrought out and shown to us from scripture what is the size of this new jerusalem you say how in the world is it how, in the, how big is is this heaven on earth is that basically what it is you see we will have a bodily resurrection and we're going to need a place what did jesus say i've gone to prepare a what a place for you he didn't say i've gone to prepare a cloud for you to sit around on the cloud all day and fly around like casper's ghost up and through the heavens no he's preparing a place for us and that place is the new jerusalem a new heaven and a new earth christ will rule and reign the temple that we know of that will be rebuilt that jesus will establish his kingdom on earth will will not be needed anymore because jesus christ according to the word here he will be the temple he will he will be the light of the world what is this this these furlongs that it's talking about here and these measurements and some of you who may have some more modern translations would probably give you some idea but as best as i've been able to discover it's somewhere around 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, uh, and 1,500 miles uh, tall. So, picture in your mind, again, the map of the United States of America from the Mississippi River all the way over to the Pacific Coast. 
That is somewhere around 2,250,000 square miles. But that's only square miles. What did it say? Its height, its width, and its depth, and all is, uh, is the same, so it's a perfect cube. So multiply 2,250,000 by 1,500, and you know what you come up with? 3,375,000,000 cubic miles, according to the description that's here. This new Jerusalem, this new city of God. Now, if you look throughout all of history, and the best that I could come up with, and I looked everywhere that I knew, there's only been about 30 billion people who have ever lived in the history of the world. 30 billion people ever. Throughout all the history of mankind, only 30 billion people have ever been born into this world. If you look at this perfect cube of 3,375,000,000 cubic miles and you look at 30 billion people, which would be everybody that's ever been born. Now, I know that everybody that's ever been born is not saved. But let's just use the figure that everybody that's ever been born, because people are wondering, where, how's everybody going to fit in this place? Well, listen to what this does. If you take the 30 billion, which is everybody that's ever been born, that we know not all are saved, that would give them over 200 square miles each to be able to live out all eternity. Heaven is a big place. The new Jerusalem that you and I as born-again believers is a part of our inheritance and we will be able to travel from, the, from this new Jerusalem, this new city of God. We'll be able to travel from there into the heights of the heavens and anywhere that God wants to send us. But that will be our dwelling place throughout all eternity according to what the Word of God says. This new city of Jerusalem. Now, my question to you today as I close, and I know I probably raised as many questions that I've, as I've answered today, and that's fine. My door's open. Come talk to me. I'll talk to you about anything. I may not agree with you, and you may not agree with me, but I'll talk to you about anything you want to talk about. But I am convinced that God has a purpose and a plan for this nation of Israel, for the city of Jerusalem. It is throughout all of his prophecy. You cannot allegorize it away. You cannot make it mythologically disappear. It is there, and you can't say that, the, you know, that, the, the, uh, that it's just a type of something. No, Jesus in his word, and God has established in his word that this new city of Jerusalem... This new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven, adorned by God, coming out of heaven. Why would he tell us that if it was not true? That's not symbolic. Nowhere does it say. You know, when, when the Bible speaks symbolically, it's very clear when it speaks symbolically. It will say, just as Jesus said when he said, uh, I am the door. Now, we know that that's symbolic language. Why? Because what was Jesus saying? Was he saying, do we take that literally? I am the door. What does that mean? Does he, does he turn into a, to a six foot by eight inch by 32 inch piece of wood? No. What are you saying is I am like a door. What does a door represent? A door represents an entrance. I am the door. But when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he uses a definite article, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But when he talks about being a door, he uses metaphorical language, and it's like this, I am like a door. I am what a door represents. 
And the Bible is very clear when it speaks symbolically or metaphorically. But it's also very clear when it speaks literally. And when the literal sense makes good sense, why in the world would you want to add any other sense to it? You know why? Because men want to take what the Bible says and fit it into a theology that they have established. Let me tell you something. There's no theology, not even mine, not, not Pastor Matthews or anybody sitting in this room can confine God to some theological perspective. The only thing God binds, is bound by is what he binds himself by, and that is by the word of his own word, mouth, the word of God. Amen. He is limited only by how he limits himself. And when he speaks to us and shows us, then we need to quit trying to make it say something it doesn't and just take it, take God at his word. You take him at his word for salvation, right? You take him at his word that he'll be with you always, right? Why can't we take him at his word that he's established a place for us, that he's going to literally sit on the throne of David? Because that's exactly what he says. And you can do any, you can, you can try to take that and make it say something else, but you know, it is always going to fall short and be incomplete. So what, what does all of this mean or say? Comes down to simple this. Jesus Christ came so that you and I could have an eternal home in heaven. He paid the price for our sin and you must personally repent of your sin and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because it is that resurrection that seals the gospel message throughout all eternity. And that he has a plan. He doesn't have a theology. He has a plan. And his plan is greater than any plan that we can come up with. His plan is simply this, that he's coming one day. Are you ready for his coming? And if you're not saved, if you have not trusted Christ personally, you say, well, I'm a member of so-and-so church, and I was baptized when I was a baby. Well, you know, as I've heard preachers say so many times through the years, listen, uh, you, can sit, you can sit in the pew of a church all you want to, um, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You can be baptized so many times in the pond that every tadpole in that pond knows your name, but that doesn't mean you're saved. And just because you were sprinkled or christened as a baby, no, that doesn't mean you're saved. You see, salvation is a choice that you make. God makes his choice as a sovereign God, and then you respond in faith. You must personally make a choice to accept Christ as your Savior because it doesn't just come automatically. Are you willing today to make that choice if you've not made it? These, these promises are yours if you will come to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together today. So much to say and so little time to say it. So much to look at with so little time to explain all the, the, the depths and the riches of it. But Lord, I pray that you would just seal to our heart the truths that you have a plan and a purpose and that you are going to work that out and that, Lord, you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And until that day, Lord, that you come, may we be busy telling others of the good news of the gospel and, Lord, letting people know that Jesus saves. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.